to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. If you're a guest here this morning, we are in a year and a half long study in the Gospel of Luke, and we are refocusing on the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And the theme verse uh, in Luke is uh, chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And we are presently exploring the seeking ministry of Jesus uh, in the middle of chapter 9, uh, onward uh, through uh, the early, uh, around chapter 19, we see Jesus seeking out disciples as he is making his way towards Jerusalem. And so we're making our way along with him in this journey, and we're stopping along the way as he stops along the way and seeing the folks and the individuals with whom he engages and how his message uh, is uh, taken into their lives uh, and how he is impacting people. And we're going to look at this morning at the first six verses of chapter 14. Uh, but before we jump into that, I want to uh, say thank you to so many of you who uh, commented on last week's sermon and how it was helpful for you. Uh, that was a very difficult uh, topic to tackle, I think. And if you weren't here last week, uh, we talked about how the gospel can be offensive. Uh, that some folks just, when they hear that Jesus is the Savior and hear that, that offer of life, it actually bothers them and they, they react in a negative way. And yet we, we looked at the fact that Although the gospel may be offensive, it's very important for us and our behavior and our attitude uh, not to offend. And we looked at ways that we could build relationships with folks. So I had a lot of people uh, contact me this week, either personally or via email, and just say, thanks, that was really helpful. I appreciate it. In fact, Cindy said to me after the sermon last Sunday, I think that was one of your top three sermons ever. Now, last Sunday afternoon, that felt great. To come home after church, I've said, boy, that was one of the best you ever preached. And Cindy doesn't give out accolades, you know, very easily. She's very honest with me, and she tells me exactly what she thinks. So I knew that she was being genuine, and it felt really great until my eyes popped open this morning. And I began to think, you know, if there, if there are two or three of your best sermons ever, doesn't that mean there also have to be two or three of your worst sermons ever? And now I'm feeling just a little bit under the gun. So uh, anyway, hopefully this will be somewhere in between those. Uh, you kind of only as good as your last game, I guess, is, is how it goes sometimes. But, but Cindy kind of turned the screws up a little bit on me. Maybe she did that on purpose to get me to think a little bit more about this passage. Because we're coming to another tough passage of Scripture this morning. The question I want to ask you today as we, as we get ready to look at this passage is... Um, not so much how do you build relationships with people so that you can present the gospel, but what do you do with folks who are really enemies of Jesus? What do you do with those people that you come across, whether they're somebody in your office, maybe somebody in your family, uh, might be a neighbor down the street, but somebody who says, you know what, I just don't want to have anything to do with the gospel of Jesus. Never, ever bring that up with me. I don't want to talk about that. Maybe you've, you've told them uh, that you're a believer. Maybe you said, hey, why don't you come to church with me some Sunday? We meet in the cafeteria. It's kind of a different experience. And they've said, absolutely not. And they're not just unchurched. They're not just unbelievers, but they're actually antagonists against the gospel. They actually live their lives in a way that say, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. How do you react to those kind of folks? Uh, I had a hockey dad like that once. A lot of you know I coach hockey. And I had a dad once that, that used to call me preacher. Uh, and he said it in a condescending way. Uh, and and he, was, he was mocking what I did for a living. And he and I would have uh, some, some very lively conversations uh, about faith. How do you engage with somebody like that that just looks you in the face and says, I don't want it, and I think you're a fool for having it? Well, my reaction, I coach hockey, and I played hockey growing up, and hockey players don't always have the best reaction in the world. And, and sometimes your reaction might be, well, I, I'm going to get in a fight here, not literally a physical fight, but I'm going I'm to fight back. I'm going to put this person in their place. 
Some of the rest of us who maybe are a little gentler and a little kinder, maybe our reaction is to just kind of back up and disengage and say, you know, that just feels uncomfortable to me. I, I don't really like conflict. I don't, I don't like to stir the pot, so to speak. So I'm just going to back up and, and leave that person alone. I'm going to suggest to you that, that both of those answers are wrong. Neither of those reactions uh, honor God, uh, nor do they offer any hope. If the Son of Man really did come to seek and to save the lost, then we have to understand that some of those who are lost, and some of us in this room who are now disciples, would have put ourselves in that category before. Some of those folks who are lost are, are actively antagonistic against the gospel. What do you do with folks like that? Well, fortunately, we have an example. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus confronts some people like that, uh, and they challenge him on who he is. And there is an encounter and a reaction. We're going to look at that this morning. So Luke chapter 14, just the first six verses. Hear the word of God. One Sabbath, when he, that being Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man there before him who had dropsy. Dropsy is a, is a blood disorder that affects your kidney uh, and, your, and your liver. And it's not immediately fatal, but, but over the long haul, if not treated, uh, it, it, can, uh, it can do you in. So here's this, this fellow who's got this kind of lifelong sickness. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox which has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we would like to have the gospel in a nice, neat little package. Uh, We would like to be able to present you uh, in a way in which makes everyone smile and immediately respond in in joy and in thankfulness. And yet, Father, that's not the world in which we live. Uh, The world in which we live uh, daily has people who reject and and scoff at your truth. Lord, we, we live in a world where daily people who are your disciples, give their lives, are put in prison, have their property confiscated simply because they call on the name of Jesus. So as we look at this text this morning, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and and insight. Lord, there are very few of us that that want to go out and and look for a way to to pick a fight with uh, somebody who doesn't believe in you. More often than not, we we probably just want to back up and, and get out of that situation and kind of put it behind us uh, and get on with our day. And and yet, Lord Jesus, in this text, you show us your wisdom and insight in in confronting head-on and in engaging those who were uh, radically skeptical of you, who people who would, would have called themselves your enemies. So, Lord Jesus, we need your wisdom. We need your understanding. We need your truth to be spoken into our lives this morning. So we pray for that. Father, I pray that you would forgive me for my sin. I pray that you would not uh, let me stand in the way of anybody hearing what you want to say to everyone gathered in this room this morning. For your glory uh, and for our good, I pray in your name. Amen. 
we're just going to run through this verse by verse and just going just gonna to offer a few observations about how Jesus deals with his enemies this morning. Uh, the first thing I want you to see in verse 1 is that Jesus willingly uh, enters the fray. It says on uh, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now, a ruler of the Pharisees would be a very, very important and influential person. Uh, this would be a man uh, who had great standing in his community. This would be a person who would be uh, on the equivalent of, of a mayor or uh, perhaps a congressman. This would be a person who represented uh, the, the entire Jewish community, uh, not just a, a few folks. This is, this is a man of great influence, of great importance. And men of that ilk and men of that stature and, and, and women who, who run in those circles uh, tend to have other folks of similar influence around them. And it was no different than that in Jesus' day. And so Jesus goes to dinner not only with, with this fellow who's a man of great importance, but everybody who's sitting around the table is somebody. Uh, if there were a newspaper reporter there and he took a picture and it'd be in the, in the, the uh, weekend edition next week, here's who ate at so-and-so's house last week. And there was a big party thrown and everybody would look at the picture and know the names. Uh, these were influential people. But notice that it says that these, these folks of influence, these important folks were watching Jesus. He was the center of attention. Now, Jesus didn't have two nickels to rub together. Jesus said to a a person one time, he said, I'm going to come follow you. Jesus' response was, you know what? The foxes have their dens and the birds of the air have their nests. I don't have any place to lay my head. In other words, I don't even know where I'm going to sleep tonight. Jesus wasn't there because he was wealthy. Jesus wasn't there because they liked him. Jesus wasn't there because he was the latest, greatest teacher, and and they had embraced what he had to say, and he had had written the bestseller book, and they all wanted to be around him. Rather, these were people who sat in fronted, uh, both faiths fronted, uh, both face to face as well as in his teaching, some of the hypocrisy in the lives of these people. And they were not only uncomfortable with that, they were actually uh, hoping to trip him up. They were hoping to knock him down a few notches. And I want you to note that Jesus accepts this invitation. He doesn't back down from his critics. He doesn't run away from skeptics or detractors, but rather he engages them gladly and openly. And I think there's a lesson to be learned there for us as well. As I said earlier, your, your kind of reaction when somebody is, is really a detractor against the faith is to say, you know, well, I, I think I kind of want to get away from that. And Jesus says, come on, let's go. You want to talk? Let's talk. You want to have lunch? I'll be there. What time? I'll, I'll show up. And he gladly enters into this conversation. I have a, I have a friend who uh, meets with some folks on Friday mornings, and they meet every Friday morning. And he's the, only, uh, he's the only disciple of Jesus in the group. Everybody else is, either believes something else or doesn't believe anything at all. And I love seeing him sometimes on Friday afternoon. Occasionally, Friday's my day off. Occasionally, we'll p- play golf together, and he'll say, now, here's what happened this morning at breakfast, you know. And this guy thinks I'm just such an idiot for believing in Jesus, and, and here's how he kind of uh, ran at me this morning. And here's what we said, and here's what the conversation was. And I find it just so delightfully encouraging uh, that this gentleman decides that he's going to spend a couple hours on Friday morning with a bunch of people who, who not only don't accept Jesus, but think you're a fool if you do. I think that's the model Jesus gives for us. Friends, we can't run and hide from the world. We can't avoid some of those difficult conversations, nor should we try to. Jesus enters the fray. But notice also that Jesus not only enters the fray, but notice that he focuses the issue. Look at verses 2 and 3. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? 
or not. Now, Luke doesn't tell us how this fellow got there. He doesn't say uh, he just happened to be wandering by. He doesn't say whether he he was actually one of the lawyers and Pharisees. Probably not because the term he uses for man is is kind of the term for a common man. Uh, So it may have been that this was a setup. It could have been that these guys said, you know what, Jesus has healed on the Sabbath before, and we don't think that's right. Let's see if he'll do it again. You know, that Jesus, he's all full of mercy. You know, he, he can't walk by a person who's sick and not do something for him. I think, we, I think we got him right where we want him. It could have been a setup. It could have been something like that. Or it could have been simply that the man knew that Jesus was there. And like so many people who had been sick, so many people who have been hurting, just said, you know, I'm going to get to Jesus. Even if I got to sneak in through the kitchen and just kind of show up at a, at a lunch where I would never be invited. Scripture doesn't say it could, could be one or the other. But Jesus looks at this man and he sees an opportunity not only for healing, but he sees an opportunity for a loving confrontation. He sees the opportunity to once again ask the question to these folks, what are you going to do with me? What are you going to do with with my claim for lordship? Because, see, the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? The question was really a statement. Jesus, as I said, had already healed on the Sabbath. If you read through Luke earlier chapters, you'll see him doing just that, and you'll see this very question has already arisen between the lawyers and the Pharisees. So Jesus is, is really making a statement. They knew where he stood. They knew what he was going to do with this man. He really wasn't asking them a question. He was making a statement. And the statement was, I'm compassionate and I'm gracious. How about you? But also the question was an offer because in his ability to heal, in his his miraculous work, Jesus claimed lordship. You'll never find a place in the gospels. You can read all four gospels. You can read them very carefully. I'm very confident of this statement. You'll never read a place in the gospels where Jesus refuses worship, where someone comes and falls at his feet, or where someone calls him Lord or master, where Jesus says, no, don't do that. You only only give that title to God. Jesus never does that. Jesus always accepts people's worship, which is either blasphemy or truth. It it has to be one or the other. Either Jesus was, was a lunatic and was totally confused about who he was and was insane because he thought he was God, or he actually was God. But Jesus always accepted people's worship. And so as he says to these folks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He's simply saying, you know what? I'm claiming one more time to be the Lord. I'm claiming to to be the embodiment of truth, and I'm asking you to believe. The question also forces a thoughtful choice. How do you answer that question? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Which leads to, to my third observation. Not only does Jesus enter the fray and focus the issue, but he also puts his critics in a conundrum. Look at, at verse 4a. But they remained silent. Think about that for a second. Why, why didn't they answer Jesus? What did they have to gain or to lose by offering? And if you're one of these lawyers and one of these Pharisees, you might say to yourself, well, you know what? If I say no, Jesus, it isn't lawful to, to heal on the Sabbath, I would be technically correct because our law says that uh, unless someone's life is in danger, that you should put off, you should put off uh, any healing. So that's work. So I could say I could say, no, Jesus, you shouldn't, but boy, I sure sound like a legalist. I sure sound like somebody who, who's covered up by the law to the, to the point that, that I can't even have common sense to see it would be a good thing to do to heal somebody. So I don't want to be there because I'll be, uh, everybody will look at me as if I have no compassion for human suffering. So I can't, say, I can't say no, but if I say yes, 
Well, that's, that's an even worse choice because now I have to agree that Jesus has the power to heal. And if he has the power to heal, that means he is the Lord. And that means I should bow down and worship him. And I absolutely don't want to do that because I'll lose face with all these guys. So you see, the, you see the, what I call the critics conundrum. They, they, don't, they don't stand a chance of winning if they give an answer. And so in a sense, very wisely, although I think very sadly, they remain silent because Jesus asked an all or nothing question. He leaves no room for them to negotiate. They're not going to, to wax philosophical about what is healing and what is not healing. We're not going to spend time talking about what exactly does it mean by the Sabbath and not by the Sabbath. Jesus' question leaves no room to negotiate. But also notice that Jesus' question is all about grace. It's about grace for the man who needs physical healing, and it's also grace extended towards these enemies of his, all of whom need spiritual healing. You see, Jesus was actually saying, I can, I can heal this guy. Not a big problem. Lord of the universe, I got this one covered, fellas. But you know what else? I could also heal you if you would just believe in me. And with that in mind, the silence is absolutely deafening because it is an abject refusal to trust Christ as Savior and Lord. When I was in youth ministry a long time ago now, uh, been a long time since I've been in youth ministry, but I remember a high school student in our ministry, uh, and she uh, she wanted a witness to her mom. Her mom was was not a believer, and uh, she would come to us and she would say to Cindy and I, she said, "Okay, now what do you think about this scenario or that scenario?" And here's what my mom said. And now I, I was thinking maybe of saying this, but what do you think? And, and we would we would knock ideas around and we'd pray for it. And we'd encourage her. And we would you know we'd say you know be respectful. Don't you know don't go in there and act like you know everything. Not that any high school student would ever do that, but don't you know don't don't go overboard you know. But in a loving, respectful way, you know maybe try this, maybe try that. And it got to the point where her mom said basically, "Be quiet." Don't ever speak the name of Jesus to me again. And friends, that that silence is deafening. But Jesus offers his critics an opportunity to really work through this. And then then he gives what I believe, what I'm going to call a clarification in verses, that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. Now, I think maybe some of you in the translation of the Bible you have, it might say have either a donkey or an ox. Okay, uh, if that's the case, some manuscripts say donkey, some manuscripts say of the early manuscripts say son. I, I find that a donkey and a son sometimes have a whole lot in common, so I don't think it, it, it matters tremendously. Um, and I have two sons, and, and, and I have been a son and am a son, so I can put myself in that category as well. Uh, but point being uh, that Jesus is uh, in his claim of Messiahship, does a couple of things. Number one, he heals. He does what he said he would do. He he knows that it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. He knows that mercy and the Sabbath go hand in hand. They're not at odds with one another. That's why he said earlier, the the man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. God's compassion and the Sabbath go hand in hand. And so he heals this man, which was absolutely the right thing today. And his claim to Messiahship is validated through his power, but also through using his power in compassion. But then the second question he, he asked the Pharisees and the, and the lawyers, which of you, and it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a question that goes without needing an answer, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen too well on the Sabbath will not immediately pull him out? You won't even stop to think about it. He says it'll be a knee-jerk reaction. 
You know, have you ever, have you ever been at the park and gone by the swings where, where the moms and the, and the young dads are pushing the kids on the swings and one of the kids falls off? What does the parent do? The parents stand back and say, you know, I'll get around to that in a few minutes. <laughs> that arm looks like it might be a little bit broken, but, you know, we'll, we, you know we, we, we're going to finish our lunch over here and then we'll go to it. Have you ever been in a home of, of some friends and you're maybe having dinner together or you're having a social event and the kids are playing in the other room and then either there's silence or a blood-curdling scream, both of which can mean the same thing? And the parent says, oh, don't worry about that. Honey, close the door. That, that noise is, is bothering. Of course not. That's insanity. A parent immediately, knee-jerk reaction, jumps up and goes to rescue their child. And then Jesus used the example of the ox, which, which is their livelihood. They, they own the ox, and that's how, part of how they're making their money. Maybe they're a farmer on the side, and, and the oxen is used to help plow the field. Or maybe they, they raise cattle, and they sell them in the marketplace. And it's one of the ways that they earn a living. You know, how many of us this week have been looking very carefully at the financial institutions of our country, with, and nobody is, could stand up this morning and say, you know, I'm just so thrilled about how we're going right now. Boy, it's a great time to be, you know, investing in the mortgage business, you know. Everybody's, you know, kind of wringing their hands a little bit. Why? Because our finances to some degree are at stake here. Are they what I've done here? That's what I've done. My knee-jerk reaction as the Messiah is to save. And his question identifies the, the Pharisees' primary goal, not as salvation and not as mercy, but as self-preservation. The Pharisees are interested only in the status quo. They simply want to hold on to the power which they now enjoy. And even though obviously anyone would save a son or an ox, their their stubborn refusal to believe in Jesus shows that this really isn't a question about the law. It's not a, a question about common sense or compassion. It's really a question of the lordship of Jesus and whether or not we will put our faith in him or hold on to it for ourselves. And sometimes you have, to, you have to look a little bit harder, and you have to look behind the scenes of a situation to see what's going on. And I think here Jesus is saying to him, you would, you would so obviously see the need to help a child, and yet you can't see your own spiritual need, which is right in front of your face. And you're so worried about holding on to your legalistic society that you're, that you're going to die in your sins, lost and broken, when salvation is standing right before you. Sometimes you have, to, you have to say it that clearly. You have to get down to those kinds of brass tacks. I think I've, I've learned uh, a lot about this approach in watching Cindy, how she deals with her at-risk kids at Kirkwood High School. Uh, because as she talks to these students, and, and every year there's, there's one or two who all year long just, just fight against her and, and, and argue with her all year and don't want to do their work. And, and at some pl- point, uh, there comes a, a breaking point uh, where she gets through and where she, she makes the connection. Uh, it happened uh, at the end of last year with a little girl who just tormented Cindy all year long. Cindy told me stuff this kid did, and I went, man, I would have been done in October. I'd have never gotten to May. One of us, one of us would have been in jail. It, just, you know, it was just one of those situations. And yet Cindy so compassionately just day after day told this kid the truth and told this kid that she loved her in spite of this kid, you know, literally spitting in her face and yelling obscenities at her on a weekly basis. And one day they, they found themselves alone down by the track. And Cindy would just pulled her aside and said, let's just you and me talk. There's no audience. You don't have to show off for anybody. What's going on in your life? And this little girl just fell into her arms and literally wept. She was broken and she was hurting. And, and finally that message had got through because Cindy was able to look beyond the anger 
beyond the words, beyond the, the, the malice, and to see a heart that needed healing. And that's what Jesus sees here, friends. He sees hearts that need healing. And so he willingly engages them in conversation. He willingly engages, willingly engages them on their turf in the Pharisees' home. He goes there gladly because he sees hearts that need to be saved and mended. And his second question points to their radical need and yet their complete blindness to their, to their situation. And so this story actually ends, I think, in a very, in a very sad uh, state. I think there's a heartbreaking conclusion of verse 6. And they could not reply to these things. Their lack of an answer revealed unbelieving hearts. They showed that they, they, weren't, they weren't buying it. <laughs> Sorry, Jesus. You know, maybe we're happy for this guy who, who's, who's healed. Maybe we're not. Maybe they didn't care about him at all. I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't say. But they simply refused to believe. And I think that we can have two reactions to this, to this story and to these kinds of situations in our life where somebody just, you know, they say, no, thank you. And they say it in a mean way. And they say it all the time. And they look at you as a fool for following Christ. I think you can look at this story about Jesus and you can, and you can see triumph. And you say, way to go. Boy, oh boy, Jesus, you really put those guys in their place. You really showed them something. You really, you really got them to shut up. You know, we, we won that one, Jesus. Way to go. Because they had nothing to say when you healed that guy and proved that you were Lord. That's one way you would react or could react. And, and uh, I, I'm ashamed to say that there have been times where I've had that reaction. I'm ashamed to say that there are times when I've known other, other people who claim to be disciples of Jesus to have that reaction. And I think it's the wrong one. Because I think the real reaction here ought to be sorrows. Because you see, these folks aren't really enemies. The Bible says very clearly that the enemy is sin and death and Satan and hell. <laughs> That's the enemy. Well, no human being is in that list. And we can't look at at folks, no matter how antagonistic they are to the gospel, no matter how violently they react to the message of peace and restoration through Christ and see enemies who need to be defeated or to be hated, but rather we need to see them as souls that need grace. Where was Jesus' heart in this confrontation? I want, to suggest that his, I want to suggest to you that his heart was breaking as he healed this man and once again offered words of life to his skeptics and his critics only to have them reject him. I think it must have made him very, very sad. He might have closed his eyes that night when he went to sleep and cried a little bit, thinking about how lost these folks were. I, I remember one dad I talked to uh, about Christ, again, back in my youth ministry days, and, and we had lunch together, and I sat, and I shared the gospel with him, and I poured my heart out to him, and I told him my story. And the reason I was there was because his kids had said, our dad's not a believer, and would you go talk to him about Jesus? You know, well, you can't turn that request down. You know, no, I'm too busy. I can't do that. Of course, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go have this conversation. I told him, I'm here because your kids asked me to be here, and I think this is the greatest message in the world. And I, and I shared as openly as I possibly could. And we got all done. And he smiled and he looked at me and he said, no, thanks. I didn't walk away thinking, boy, I'm really glad I made my points. I didn't walk away thinking, well, he didn't have any retort to, to the fact that Jesus claims to be Messiah and Lord. I walked away in tears. It was one of the saddest days of my life, quite frankly. Because here's a person who heard the claims of Christ and said, no. What will we do when we're confronted by enemies of Jesus. Well, I think we need to jump in and mix it up. <laughs> I, I like my friend who Friday morning goes and has breakfast with those guys. And I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you and I want to uh, 
lovingly confront you if you're tempted to run away, not to do that. I'm not saying go pick a fight with people, but I am saying be willing to enter the fray. Don't worry about whether you'll have the right words. Don't worry about whether you'll say exactly the right thing. If you spend all your time worrying that, you'll never do it. Just jump in. I had a friend tell me about a time he led uh, a friend of his to the Lord who was a roommate of his for three years, and they would argue almost every night about Christianity. He said, this buddy of mine was so much smarter than me, he'd argue me into the ground. Every night I'd go to bed thinking, well, I hope this is true. <laughs> you know, I lost, every, I lost every argument with this guy. But at the end of three years, the guy came in and remember me and said, I want to I pray to accept Jesus. I want to pray to accept Jesus. You've out-argued me every, every, every step of the way. What on earth are you talking about? He said, well, I've just watched the way you live. And the fact that you didn't hate me because I didn't believe what you believed. What will we do with the enemies of Jesus? Get in there and mix it up. But remember, they're not enemies. They're just people like you and me. People that need grace. Let's pray.